Welcome everyone to another uh, podcast for Flyover Labs. Today we are lucky enough, lucky enough to have Professor Mark Cook, who is a professor of animal sciences at University of Wisconsin Madison. Mark, thanks for uh, joining us. Oh, thanks, Dave, for uh, coming in and listening to my story. So Mark, Mark's an interesting guy. I've known Mark for probably about seven years at least now, and he's he's quite the brilliant scientist. And it's hard to know even where to start with Mark. He's a uh, he's a professor, as we went over, and he's also been a co-founder of multiple companies, two of which right now is Isomark and ABE Discovery, and he was also a uh, uh, helped lead initiative for a, a program to, at the University of Wisconsin to commercialize technology technologies called D2P. So Mark's a busy guy and very creative. So I was pretty excited to have him on the show. Uh, we, he'll tell you more about his background. We'll tell he'll talk more about. Um, a couple of uh, projects he's worked on and you know his vision for the university systems and how they can promote innovation um, and what companies can learn from that too so uh we probably should get right into it uh it's hard to know to start start with mark but maybe we'll have mark uh, tell us a little bit about his background and uh why why animal sciences and um, when did he co-found some of these companies and um, what happened with them or what are they doing now Okay, thanks, Dave, uh, for the question. Um, yeah, I I grew up in southern Louisiana. I was a uh, a son of a entrepreneur that was involved in the oil industry, uh, banking, glass, uh, very entrepreneurial father, and um, so one of the brothers went into the oil industry. One went into the financial world. And uh, my dad came to me and said, well, why don't you be a college professor? And uh, it sounded like a pretty good idea at the time. I didn't know anything about it. Uh, he, was, he was the first generation college kid, so I was kind of the second generation. So I went to LSU. Uh, like most kids, I, I started off in, in pre-med. Uh, but uh, to kind of cut it short, I got a degree in microbiology and uh, the lights came on uh, my senior year that I wanted to study uh, nutrition and disease resistance. I knew nothing about nutrition, but quite a bit about uh, disease and, and the immune response. So I, um, I went into a uh, poultry science department to uh, study nutrition, ended up in, with a guy in vet science working on a PhD at LSU. Uh, or Louisiana State University, uh, working on the interface between uh, nutrition, uh, viral infections, and uh, the immune response. Um, finished that in August of 1982. Uh, within a week after, or really during my going away party, I got asked to come to Wisconsin as a postdoc. Um, asked for too much money, so they made me a lecturer. <laughs> and I uh, ended up having to start teaching courses uh, the day after I got here. And uh, that was in 1982. Uh, quickly became a, a assistant professor uh, and kind of moved up the, the ranks. Why Wisconsin? Why animal science? Um, my my uh, love was quite broad. I always had kind of a background in animal agriculture as a kid. I worked on my uncle's dairy farm always had horses. Uh, Dad didn't want anything to do with any of it, but uh, it was just kind of a passion I had. Um, 
And so that's kind of how I ended up in animal science. Uh, but eventually my work uh, expanded animals to, uh, to humans or anything that kind of popped up in between. Interesting. Thanks, Mark. And what type of, uh, or what companies have you been uh, co-founders of over the years? Yeah, so, um, you know, I, I really didn't get interested. Uh, I didn't understand the, the innovative side uh, or, or how to do it uh, while I was a professor until about 1989 when I went on sabbatical and I bumped into uh, a uh, person who said she loved my ideas but they were of no value commercially because there were no patents. Meanwhile, we had Wharf back at Wisconsin. This was a sabbatical in Pennsylvania. Had Wharf back at Wisconsin that was a secret organization uh, that pretty much was not available to a lot of the faculty. And um, so when I got back uh, after that sabbatical, I retooled uh, a lot of what we were doing and uh, we began to uh, do a lot more patenting in my uh, laboratory, primarily seeking out people to license the technology. My first opportunity to uh, get involved in a company um, was uh, based upon some inventions uh, Mike Preece and I had on a compound called conjugated linoleic acid, or CLA. And uh, this is a fatty acid that's uh, natural occurring. Turned out to be uh, a very potent anti-inflammatory compound. Uh, we can make it in the laboratory. And um, we kind of stumbled on, Mike and I stumbled on, that it uh, prevented fat accumulation. So that launched into a dietary supplement uh, by a group out of Norway. It started a company called Natural Lipids. They became very interested in getting it into animal agriculture. And uh, so I, I kind of toured around with the uh, CEO of that Norwegian company, meeting with different ag companies and uh, pretty much shook my head no after each one of these encounters, um, saying, I don't think this is the right company. So they finally said, well, why don't we start our own? And um, I, this was with uh, 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 the guy from Norway, as well as a guy named Ken Johnson, who used to be at Wharf. And uh, Ken was a pretty much firm believer that professors shouldn't be involved in business. But I sided up against the Norwegian. I said, whatever Ken gets uh, to buy in, I want to buy in. So um, I was able to, to buy in as a co-founder of that company. Uh, not a huge percent because most of the money was coming in from the Norwegian. So that was my first launch. Uh, after that, uh, we had made some more discoveries and had a, a lot of patents on antibody technology that are antibodies that are used orally. And we had one uh, that was licensed to DuPont and ConAgra um, uh, for controlling appetite in chickens and enhancing feed efficiency. And uh, I was trying to get them to license another one that was much better, but they wouldn't do it. So we spun out a company with a guy named Bob Kirshner and Greg Johnson, a couple of entrepreneurs who were looking for another company to start. And that company was called AOVA Technologies. Uh, so we launched that company, I think somewhere around 2001, 2002. 
the third company uh, that we launched was very different, but mm -hmm. uh, really the same pathway was based upon uh, some work I was doing with Warren Porter in zoology, uh, analyzing breath, uh, exhale breath for markers of uh, inflammation. And um, Warren was actually interested in, in uh, trying to determine if uh, animals he caught, like mice, uh, field mice, uh, were catabolic or anabolic. And we came up with this kind of neat idea of analyzing breath for biomarkers of these mice um, that resulted in patents. And it wasn't long before we realized that we had stumbled onto something that could uh, detect the onfet onset of infection. Uh, we tried to get this uh, launched in animal agriculture, couldn't get any traction, anybody to license it. So we spun out a company I think, Dave, that was around 2004, 2005, yeah. called Isomark. And uh, in fact, Dave actually came and, and helped us organize that company for several years and served as the CEO. Um, and it, it focuses mainly on intensive care patients. Um, I thought I'd never start another company <laughs> uh, and a, uh, what, a scientist in my lab were working on a project we stumbled on to something quite by accident, uh, which was uh, we were trying to do something else. And it was an antibody to a uh, cytokine produced by the immune system called interleukin-10. And very shortly in the experiments, we discovered this could actually replace antibiotics in animal agriculture. Uh, we did not start that company until literally somebody had uh, the purchase order in hand to buy the product. And then uh, we realized we needed to launch this thing fairly quickly. Again, we went back to Dave Cruz and said, hey, can you help us get this put together? And that company is ABE Discovery, uh, which we just launched, um, oh, I think in April yeah. of uh, 2015. 2015. That's correct. Interesting. And uh, Mark, can you talk a little bit more about, because I was really interested in how you took the tech, for ABE, the um, for the chicken technology, how you took that through the university and you, just, you nurtured it and incubated it and then finally launched after you almost had a purchase order. Because I, I think that, well, we've talked about this, it seems like a really good model for other researchers and universities to use. Yeah, so... Um, having been involved, we were pretty successful with the first company, which was called, called Conlinko. That one got sold, sold to BASF. Um, but the next two companies, um, uh, both AOVA Technology and, and Isomark, um, were not developed fully enough uh, for a company launch. Um, and one of the problems we had on campus, once you launch a company, uh, there are state dealings laws with uh, public institutions, which makes it very difficult for the professor to continue to be involved in the research um, associated with those companies. And so um, in the case of uh, ABE, uh, even before that company was founded, uh, uh, we had identified we had some major problems with launching companies on Madison's campus. 
uh, we were doing about 350 uh, disclosures a year on campus to Wharf, uh, probably filing somewhere around 200 to 250 patents. But um, uh, we were dismal in startups. I mean, the, the bottom of the heap. And um, so uh, I was the chair of the university committee, which is the executive committee for the Senate on campus. And uh, Paul DeLuca, our provost, uh, kept talking about this initiative he wanted to start called uh, Discovery to Products, or D2P. It was going to be a joint venture between uh, the university and Wharf, uh, focused on trying to help start up more companies. And uh, so I kept bringing Paul in to talk to our committee about this um, and give us the updates. And nothing was happening. They started working on this about 2012, excuse me, 2010. Mm -hmm. and, uh, and it was pretty much stalled out until right before they hired the uh, Secretary of Commerce, Becky Blank, to be our chancellor. Uh, then all the activity picked up. She must have told them she was interested in entrepreneurial activity. So the current um, chancellor in Wharf and the provost uh, came to me and asked me if I would uh, launch a discovery of the product um, and, and try to, to uh, build this program. Uh, we had about three point, I want to say 3.6 uh, million or 3.2 million to get this launched. I looked it over. I agreed to, to uh, help launch it. I looked over the mission they had put together and I, I realized from an entrepreneur's uh, point of view that we had some ga very large gaping holes. Um, and one of those was that uh, there was just really no cash on our campus uh, to speak of that would take innovations and help march them uh, to the private sector, particularly incubate them on campus. And D2P could be the perfect model where we would have uh, mentors and residents, uh, people from the business world who could help faculty, staff, and students take their innovations, fund the development to de-risk these, primarily in the market area. Some research might be needed as well, but to move these much closer uh, to a startup where they had a better chance. And so uh, with ADE, we were able to do that and use uh, that particular uh, uh, launch vehicle as well as another program put together by Wharf called their Accelerator Program uh, to uh, both technically de-risk this innovation, then market de-risk the innovation. And so pretty much, like I said, we had somebody that was ready to buy the product uh, before we actually launched the company. And um, so that was kind of the goal and the uh, vision for D2P is how can we incubate these innovations, develop them as long as possible on campus before we kick them out the door and they have to operate on their own. Interesting. That's a, that's a good story, Mark. And uh, so yeah, I've known Mark for a few years and I've learned a, t a ton from him. And I always remember one story he told, and this is kind of, I bring this up because it's a good example of how Mark uh, just uh, thinks differently than a lot of folks. 
Uh, so, Mark, can you share the, your hairball oh, stories? Oh, yeah, yeah. Yes. Yeah, that was, that was my fastest uh, uh, discovery <laughs> and license, I think. Um, uh, so, kind of my goal is, is not necessarily to start companies. Um, I like to develop products and get them licensed. If I believe in, in the product and it doesn't get licensed, then I'm apt to uh, get involved and put my personal cash in it and, and start the company to see if we can get it going. Um, this one was uh, a pet food company, and I might as well say their name, it's Purina, because uh, they're the ones that sells the product, um, came to me and asked if uh, uh, they could give my uh, laboratory or give me some money for, for consulting uh, on studying CLA or conjugated linoleic acid in pet foods. And, uh, and this would be uh, one phone call a month and uh, that they would give and kind of pick my brain. They're down in St. Louis, I'm here in Madison. And I said, well, why don't you just give a gift to uh, the university that my lab can use and, and instead of consulting fees. So they agreed to that. And uh, so during this process, uh, we were working not only on CLA and pets, uh, looking at data, but they, they had some other ideas of problems that they were trying to solve. And one that came up every session on these phone calls was hairballs in cats. And uh, it just wasn't my forte, it's out of what I do, but uh, they pestered me after about three or four months. Well, do you have any other ideas on hairballs and cats? And um, uh, so eventually I just asked them uh, a simple question on one of these phone calls. I said, well, what is a hairball? And all their scientists and, and veterinarians and business guys started laughing at me and said, well, it's just hair. I said, well, ship me 20. And so they shipped me 20 hairballs. I got it uh, overnight express in a styrofoam crate. I didn't look at it or anything. I handed the crate to a guy named uh, Jim Turk, who was in my lab, an undergraduate. He was grinding up mice and analyzing them for another CLA project at the time. And I said, give me a proximal analysis on, on these hairballs. I think that's what they are and uh, I need it quick. So within about five days, he had analyzed them for uh, protein level, moisture level, uh, fiber level, uh, ash level, and fat level. And he brought me in a scrap of paper where he analyzed about four of them. And I noticed that they were running as high as 30% uh, fat. So it wasn't all protein. It was a lot of fat associated with these hairballs. Well, I think the next thing's obvious to anybody that's uh, thinking about this. So I yelled at my technician, I said, get me two beakers, uh, uh, put them at pH 2, which is the pH of the stomach, that's where the hairball gets hung up. Drop a, um, a hairball in each beaker and come tell me what you see in, in about 20 minutes. So Beth Drake uh, comes in about 20 minutes later, and I said, what did you see? She said, nothing. I said, yeah, they're floating like corks, right? She said, yes. So I walked in the lab. I do the dishes at home, and uh, I grabbed Dawn's detergent by the sink. 
um, and I squirted it. That's the first time I saw a hairball. Squirted in one of the beakers, and I said, don't stir it, don't do anything, and come tell me what happens in 20 minutes. She came back in, and she said, uh, the one you squirted Dawn's in fell apart. I said, well, collect some data. And she said, what data? I said, I don't know. Why not uh, clumpy hair versus loose hair? <laughs> so uh, she began to repeat the experiment using a control. Then she'd separate out the, the loose hair from the clumpy hair and get weights on it. And uh, she brought that into the lab. Meanwhile, I was doing patent searches on the use of fat emulsifiers, like food grade uh, emulsifiers, like uh, uh, lecithin, which comes from soybean oil, and um, uh, different tweens, different types of product on the treat treatment of bezoars or hairballs. And there was nothing in the patent literature. So I called up Wharf and I said, uh, is John Hardiman at Wharf? I said, I think I have a patent. He said, what's that? A treatment for preventing hairballs in cats. So. Um, John says, love it. And he says, do you have any data? So about that time, Beth walked in with a paper towel with the, her data. I said, yeah, I got data. He said, well, could you send it over? And I said, well, let me uh, photocopy the paper towel and fax it to you. And uh, so I did that. And he, he said, this is great. When do you need to patent? I said, we need to move on this really quick because uh, these guys are going to call me up about the hairballs. So we got a patent filed uh, fairly quick uh, through Quarles and Brady. And um, uh, sure enough, the guys called me up for our, I guess it was once a month call. And the first thing was they were all laughing on the other end of the line about what did you do with the hairballs? And everybody was giggling. So I guess it was a big joke until I said I analyzed them. And uh, it got dead quiet. And the business guy said, well, what did you find? I said, they're 30% fat. All you need to do is add a little fat emulsifier, food grade emulsifier. And I said, oh, by the way, you better call Wharf if you want a license to the patent. So they did. They licensed the patent. They never talked to me again after that, but uh, they did license the patent and bring that product into the marketplace. Oh, that's brilliant. I have a told a very short version of that to multiple people just to show uh, show what you can do. So I'm curious, for you, kind of the innovation process, I mean, do you have a process or do you, what makes you think that, are you just curious or what makes you uh, be able to come up with new ideas? Is it just meeting people in the hallways or, it, or maybe it's none of the above? Do you have a process or do you have, what works for you? Or, yeah, so I... So when I, I think of the research we do in our lab, um, it's uh, pretty divided. And um, there, there's research, which I would say the vast majority of research that goes on campus is uh, focused on the creation of knowledge. Hmm. And um, this is research that's answering the next question about how a system works, how something functions. Um, very often in that type of work, uh, there is not patentable information. Can you give an example? Um, well, for example, we've, we've uh, been studying um, um, 
a, a CLA that's uh, present in uh, dairy fat. And we're trying to understand the role of dairy fat in the prevention of uh, inflammatory diseases such mm -hmm. as arthritis, cardiovascular disease, uh, lupus, those types of things. And so uh, you can't patent dairy fat. Uh, we've already done all the patenting on CLA, but we're trying to build the knowledge base of how these fatty acids in dairy fat are affecting uh, disease and, and why dairy fat actually may, may be of value. Um, so that would be probably a pretty good example. Even in our IL-10 work, uh, we're doing a lot trying to understand the secretion of IL-10 and when it occurs and why it occurs and where it gets secreted, um, which are knowledge-based uh, research projects, not patentable. The difference between the knowledge creation and what I tend to call innovation uh, is uh, these offshoots, uh, and they can be accidental or they can be intentional. But the uh, frame of mind is very different when thinking about uh, innovation versus knowledge. And it's really thinking about the, the knowledge that's creating with this constant uh, calculator in the back of your mind, does this have a practical implication and where can it be applied and what do you have to do to make it applied? So that, that's one way is constantly watching your research to see um, how it might be applied in, into the real field. To give you an example of that, when we were doing our interleukin-10 work um, and making antibodies to interleukin-10, that was all knowledge-based. We were trying to create a model of inflammation. And once we discovered that model of inflammation, we could use that to try to find innovations to prevent it. Um, in the course of those studies, uh, when we started infecting animals, we began to realize that um, we were actually curing the diseases uh, that we were hoping to come up with a solution uh, using that model. Um, Jordan missed it uh, at first, and he came in and he said the experiments failed. Uh, the, uh, the chickens given the anti-IL-10 uh, when infected, uh, didn't show more infection, they showed less. And immediately I knew if it was less, that was a good thing. Um, and otherwise we probably would have missed it because we were so focused on a hypothesis and testing uh, uh, very specific things. So it's, it's always having the market in the back of your mind of what is needed what can uh, be used, what can be created uh, from the knowledge-based uh, uh, research that we do. And the second is more intentional, where we begin to know that there's a problem uh, that has a, a market uh, potential uh, that's been identified, and we begin to ask questions, how can we fix that particular problem? Um, that is not what we train PhDs to do per se, although we incorporate that in their program. 
uh, but it's very often what I have uh, postdocs and scientists working on, which is solving problems uh, uh, and trying to create innovations to solve problems that fit a market need. And that, that's a great segue into the, my next question was more around uh, PhDs and postdocs at universities and uh, what's, what's your vision for uh, those roles? And maybe this doesn't apply to everyone, but at least from your perspective, you know, who do you recruit? Who are you interested in? And uh, do you see that uh, kind of that same model going across the to different parts of the university? Or no, I think it's a good question. Um, so I'm very concerned about um, kind of what we do in in uh, training PhDs. First of all. Uh, uh, there's such a few PhDs that actually go into academia uh, and fewer and fewer every day. And so I, I think that we can't continue uh, to just simply train uh, PhDs in our lab expecting that they're going to become professors. And actually a lot of them don't want to become professors. So I think um, we, we need to also be training PhDs that um, are, are equipped to go into uh, working in, in uh, various companies and businesses. Now my lab, I tend to sort out and attract a very specific type of PhD and postdoc. Uh, but the PhD, I'll start with that. I'm, I'm looking for entrepreneurial PhDs. Uh, they may start off with uh, um, they're willing to consider academia, our business, or even creating their own technology. We still have to get them through uh, the traditional PhD program, which is a knowledge-based program. But I try to take the uh, graduate student working on a PhD and uh, introduce them to the entrepreneurial world through entrepreneurial boot camp, which is taught on campus, and some different entrepreneurial activities that are available. Um, I don't have a lot of my PhDs following students following patents, but I do have some, and some are more entrepreneurial than others. I then attract at a postdoc level very entrepreneurial uh, postdocs. All of them tend to, to be very specifically uh, focused in on um, creating uh, innovations that solve problems with the, uh, the potential of filing patents and the possibility of spinning off companies. And, um, and that's been very rewarding. Uh, do we do a lot of that on campus? Uh, there are key labs that are probably better at it than other labs. And I wouldn't say a lot of labs, but, but there are some uh, labs that have a pretty good history of it. Um, we probably are still hiring faculty that are more along the knowledge base creation and less along the areas of what I call innovation and considering the marketplace. Um, so how we teach courses, uh, for example, is also probably being affected in that uh, we're still teaching much more heavy in, in knowledge base than innovation base. 
there is a shift that's going on uh, where we're not taking these kids that are all excited about creating, sticking them in a chair for four years and giving them a diploma, but we're giving them more playgrounds to become uh, innovative. And we're seeing a lot of undergraduates which are uh, becoming more entrepreneurial and innovative. I think the day of, of kids wanting to work for a big company is changing very rapidly. And I actually mentioned this to uh, uh, the CTO of a large uh, a multi-billion dollar company that the kids today are not aspiring to go work for uh, large companies. Um, many of them are looking for more entrepreneurial activities. And as a institution, we need to, to be providing more of those opportunities in our education. And, and speaking of large companies, spe speaking of large companies, uh, you've worked with a lot of large companies over the years. Do you, do you have any thoughts or suggestions how they could probably be more innovative or set themselves up from your experience? Or is it just, uh, do they have, well, they have advantages with probably additional resources, but do they have limitations too that you don't have? Um, well, I think um, especially in trying to get uh, new innovative products licensed to large companies is uh, very, very difficult. Um, it either, either doesn't uh, exactly fit their business plan, uh, but very often we're talking to people, uh, if we talk to the scientists uh, in the large companies, they're, they're seems like their whole job is to kill the idea. Um, so they're, they tend not to be very open to new ideas uh, in the innovations. Uh, they're along the mindset of creating the types of products that they create. And unless you can get to a, a pretty high level um, a person within a company, ideally the CEO's the best place um, that's where I think there's more receptivity to innovative ideas. Uh, the general scientist um, is just not going to take the risk. It needs to come from the top down. And so uh, that's been the biggest struggle in, in licensing, I think, today, some, some of the innovations. So the only alternative is to actually start it, start a company with those innovations, Hopefully you can get enough cash to make it uh, progress far enough along. And then uh, uh, eventually maybe one of those large companies will see uh, the, the potential of the technology and then they'll buy that technology out after it's been tested and proven on the ground. But they're not going to invest uh, very early. They've got to see quite a bit of progress before they're going to step in. All right, I have one more question and then we'll wrap it up. We're going over our t 30 minutes, but that's okay. Mark, we can talk for three hours, I think. But uh, so lastly, I was I was curious how the process works from, and maybe you have an example of how idea starts and then you test it and you test it some more and then you, uh, you know, might do more, even larger field trials and then finally bring it to commercialization. Because um, I remember we were talking about one technology, like, oh, this has a lot of promise, but you know, like, it might take two or three years before we know for sure. 
So how does that whole process work? Yeah, so I'm, I'm making changes uh, now in how I do that process uh, from um, uh, the actual uh, design to, to the end product. Um, and I, I won't go into details on one that uh, we've got a new initiative on campus um, where there's about three professors, uh, maybe four involved, where we're interested in the uh, byproducts of the slaughter industry, which there's a lot of byproducts in the slaughter industry. Those are all the molecules that kept the animal alive. How to isolate some of those high value molecules from the animal and turn them into useful products. So um, the trick is uh, first to come up with the idea. In our case, we, we like not only the idea, but we want to march through all the way to where it's going to be used, how big is the market, how much can we produce it for, uh, will the market buy it, in some cases talking to people in the market uh, before we ever pick up the pipette or ask for the first dollar. And then, then we have to come up with some form of, of resources, limited resources, uh, to begin to kind of step this project forward through some kind of benchmarking. And then uh, uh, I like more having companies involved in this all the way through. Um, and then I used to try to do all the experimental trials on my campus. I, I look for collaborations uh, from other universities who have better resources than I do. I'll contract out uh, uh, testing labs if I need to. Um, whatever it takes to kind of put this together and then get it into the hands of uh, the end user as fast as we can to, to field test it. And uh, I think the goal is to kill these ideas as fast as we can so we can move on to the next one and not, not fall in love with these things too much. You can fall in love with knowledge creation but not innovation. Awesome, okay, that was interesting. Well, uh, I think we're out of time. So, Mark, definitely appreciate it. I learned actually a lot, even though I've known you for years. I still learned a lot about your background and ideas. So I, I appreciate your time and thoughts. Well, thanks, David, for having me. All right. Bye, everyone. We'll see you on the next podcast.